Hi, I'm Paul Gladder. I'm with Religion Unplugged podcast, and I'm here talking to Justin Sheck about his new book called Blood and Oil. Uh, it's about Mohammed bin Salman's ruthless quest for global power. I'm a reporter of the Wall Street Journal, and a colleague, Bradley Hope, and I started writing about Saudi Arabia about four years ago. And our work at the Journal sort of led us further and further down this path, and ended up uh, becoming a book. I had been covering tech in Silicon Valley, ended up moving to London and writing about oil for a while, and then working on international you know, financial investigations for a while, and then spent a year uh, on a project about the gray market opioid trade between India and West Africa, which I, I found fascinating, but I think by, you know, after a year of that, my editor felt like, I really should be focused on something of more direct interest to the Wall Street Journal and its readers. And Saudi Arabia was very rapidly going through some, some big change, including uh, an IPO of the state-owned oil company. So my boss sort of, sort of stuck me on it, and it came full circle because it ended up being largely a tech story, only now uh, you know, on Saudi Arabia. So yeah, I mean, religion is, is the underpinning of any conversation about modern Saudi Arabia. Uh, it, you know, it, it's the foundation of the, the monarchy, or I should say, it has been the foundation of the monarchy, and that's shifting now. And so any, any story about Saudi Arabia is sort of at its essence going to rest atop a foundation of a monarchy that for 100 years uh, based its legitimacy on a religious establishment that's now shifting very rapidly and, and sort of unexpectedly for a lot of people. I think for the purposes of thinking about Saudi Arabia now, the way to think about it is there wasn't a Saudi Arabia until about 100 years ago. You had the Arabian Peninsula, which was divided up into different uh, territories. There were historically some small sort of kingdoms. There's the Ottoman Empire that controlled a lot of it. But historically, the area where Mecca and Medina are located and the area where Riyadh, the capital of Saudi, of Saudi Arabia, were located were, were separate areas under separate control. And what happened was the patriarch of the, of the current regime in Saudi Arabia, um, Abdulaziz uh, in Saudi, sometimes called Ibn Saud in the, in the West. He, um, he was sort of a he was one of many people who wanted power in the region at the time of you know, the demise of the Ottoman Empire and uh, British expansion. And his family, the Al Saud, had historically ruled the central part of, of Saudi Arabia, the area around Riyadh, on and off. They, they were in power, they were out of power. Their historical alliance was with a group of very, very conservative clerics that had armed fighters, and they're what we now refer to as Wahhabists. They were basically a group of people who, who interpreted Islam in, in a very conservative way. They were Sunnis, and their feeling was that this is the true Islam and anything else is, is heresy. Yeah. And their, their alignment with Al Saud is what allowed the father of the current king, about 100 years ago, to conquer the majority of the Arabian Peninsula and unify it into what we now know as Saudi Arabia. And since then, um, the country has been ruled, you know, first by, by the founding king, and then by a succession of his sons. 
And all along, their legitimacy in the eyes of the Saudi people, or at least they, they felt their legitimacy in the eyes of the Saudi people, rested with their alliance with the religious establishment. What we're going to get to here is, is the, basic, the basic shift, to me is a fundamental shift, is this family based its legitimacy on the alliance with these like, extremely right-wing rulers. And there was sort of a crisis in 1979, not uh, uncoincidentally with the Iranian revolution, where they saw these kind of extremists who were away from the establishment take over. And the Al Saud family became very concerned about that. There was then these extremists took over the Grand Mosque in Mecca and the, the Saudi army went in and in an armed crackdown, had to crack down on it. But after that happened, what, they, what the family did was they, they were so worried about increasing extremism that they became more conservative. They gave more power to the most conservative elements out of fear that if they moved the country more internationally and kind of to a more open stance, it would encourage extremism. So 1979 it became more conservative. And that's where we were until a few years ago when you see these old men, this gerontocracy. But then MBS kind of realizes like 60% of the population is below 30 years old and they have unfettered access to Twitter and Facebook and Instagram and they have nothing to do. They can't even go to a movie or see live music. They spend all day looking on the internet at what people their age in every other country are doing and they're pissed off and they can't get a real job because everyone just gets oil money, doesn't do anything, there's no real economy. So he's trying to shift the monarchy's mandate from the religious establishment to the country's youth, betting that like the only way they can stay in power is if they become a place where you can like go on a date and see a movie and, and hear a concert. You know, you and Bradley Hope, uh, your colleague at the journal, do either of you speak Arabic? It was that part of the reporting or had, did, did, so, did you study uh, Middle East studies or something either? No, not at all. No. So okay. Bradley speaks a little bit of Arabic and he had been based in Abu Dhabi for, for some time. Um, but, you know, I was based in London and, you know, took several trips to Saudi Arabia and did a bunch of reporting in Saudi Arabia and, and Sudan and uh, UAE yeah. and areas in the region. But, you know, in Saudi Arabia, like generally people speak English or else working through a translator, which is, you know, far from ideal. But London and New York are in many ways better places to report on Saudi Arabia than Saudi Arabia because people are much more open when they're not in a, in a place where they're worried about surveillance. Just to tee up, I think, a little bit of what I think the, the conflict that we, we I want to explore is when you follow as a in the finance or business world, you often see the you, where we saw for many years the face of this one guy with tinted glasses on CNBC talking about stocks. Right. There was there was a section where you were describing who he is and you had a, some really interesting lines. There was uh, like, uh, you know, if he sees something he likes, he buys 20 of them for all these houses. You know? Yeah, that's pretty much the beginning. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Um, the call just before 4 a.m. was urgent and unnerving. The king needed to see his nephew, Prince Awalid bin Talal al Saud, as soon as possible. Come right away, the caller from the royal court said. For decades, Awalid had been the world's best-known Saudi businessman. He was the kind of person people wanted to be around, if only to glimpse life with a seemingly bottomless supply of money. With personal wealth estimated at $18 billion, he was, in the eyes of many Americans and Europeans, the ultimate Saudi fabulously rich, debonair, and excessive to the extreme. He had a fleet of planes, including a 747 jet with a throne-like chair in the middle, 
and a $90 million yacht comfortably slept 22 guests with 30 crew members to look after them. When he found something he liked, he'd buy 10 or 20 of it, even if it was an expensive and bulky exercise machine. One for each home, pied-a-terre, desert camp, and yacht. I will leave delighted in that image and in representations of his own image, showing visitors to his offices in Riyadh, Paris, and New York, thick stacks of magazines with his face on the cover, the long interviews about his business career. Some rooms in his homes contain more than a dozen photos or paintings of Al-Walid at different stages of his life. He liked drinking tea from a mug with his face on it. The prince was a force in American business, buying stakes in Citibank, Apple, and Twitter. In a partnership with Bill Gates, Al-Walid's kingdom holding company owned a chunk of the Four Seasons hotel chain, famed for its luxury accommodations. When he traveled, he brought along a two-dozen person retinue, including cooks, cleaners, butlers, and business advisors. Yet here he was on a cool November night in 2017, feeling a chill down his spine as he got dressed at his desert retreat for the meeting with the king. Saudi Arabia was seeing huge changes, some of them obvious, like the retreat of religious police from the streets and the sound of music in cafes after decades of prohibition and anything that could arouse the senses. The country had so long been a refuge of the ultra-conservative interpretation of Islam referred to, critic, referred to by critics as Wahhabism, that Saudi citizens felt truly dizzy by the fast-paced reforms. Movie theaters were going up. Women were walking around with more freedoms than ever before. And there was talk of shifting the economy away from oil for good. The country's richest and most powerful also perceived something else, a cracking sound. The very foundations of their ornate palaces seemed to be weakening. It didn't matter that Al-Walid called heads of states and the wealthiest people in the world his friends. His unassailability as a billionaire prince was disintegrating. After more than two years of the reign of his uncle, King Salman bin Abdulaziz al Saud, Al-Walid had heard the stories about royals summoned in the night or tricked onto airplanes only to find themselves dragged home to Saudi Arabia and put in confinement. The man behind those renditions was King Salman's son, Al-Walid's young cousin, Mohammed bin Salman al Saud, who was only 32, but had already gained a reputation for his temper and for charging ahead with aggressive changes. So that, that brings us, you introduce us right away there to uh, bin Salman and, and probably to a moment where a lot of the, the Americans and the rest of the world start realizing that we need to pay attention to who this guy is. When, he, as you described, he, he, right, he put uh, Al-Walid and others into a prison in the Ritz-Carlton. Where, where do you go from there in the book as to trying to figure out who MBS is and whether he's a good guy or a bad guy? Well, we're skeptical. We're skeptical of power. You know, I mean, you're, you're a journalist. Like, I think most of us who go into this field are, you know, harbor a deep skepticism for power and a deeper skepticism for of absolute power. But, you know, we tried really hard to not come to a conclusion about whether he was good or bad or in between. Because what Bradley and I felt was that the story is too good and too interesting and too complex for, like, good guys or bad guys. It, it's It's something other than that. And so, you know, I mean, I think the question, a more important question to ask from an American perspective, I think, is what does he mean for America, number one? And number two, is he a reformer? Not is he good or is he bad, but is he truly a reformer? Because he's positioned himself at home and abroad as the person who's going to bring this kingdom out of its bubble of unmodernity and into the modern world. And it's no longer going to be a place that just pumps oil and sells it and lives as this conservative, religious-dominated, you know, old-man-ruled 
sleepy country, he's going to turn it into, into the world's biggest tech investor, a center for innovation, a place where it's, it will be producing goods and services and ideas, and it'll be sort of a, a leader in the world rather than just its own sort of sleepy bubble. The questions that, that I asked there, are, you know, I think he's gotten a lot of, you know, rightfully gotten a lot of um, publicity and attention for doing things like allowing women to drive. Right. And remember, his father's the king. He's the crown prince. So he'll, he'll, you know, he's in line to be the next king, but his mm -hmm. father's very old and, and MBS is sort of the de facto ruler. He took away the power of the religious police. When you go to Saudi Arabia, you know, five years ago, and if you're in a mall and you're a woman and your ankles are showing, there's like these roving bands of dudes with like long beards who would tell you to cover up your ankles or maybe arrest you. You know, they were policing whether like ice cream stores were closing during prayer time. They made it like, you know, unpleasant for a lot of people who just wanted to go around and not be super religious all day. Yeah. And he, yeah. he took away their, their power to arrest people, which was like unthinkable like seven or eight years ago. Yeah. So these are all in a way their reforms, but I think in a bigger and deeper and more fundamental way, the goal of a monarchy is not to impose religion or make religion less imposing or to make, the goal of a monarchy is to continue the monarchy. And so if, if the things that appear to be reforms are being done in the furtherance of continuing an absolute monarchy where people have no franchise and, and no say whatsoever in their rule, I think it's really hard to call him a reformer. Right. In, in, in a fundamental way, he's just like one more guy in line to inherit the throne. He's doing everything he can to make sure that his appointed successor also inherits the throne. Right. So that's, to me, I think that's something other than reform. Yeah. Well, I want to hear more on, on aspects of, of that theory. And, and one, one, one aspect is, um, if it's true, and I've read reports in you know, a lot of mainstream media, and I've been to places like Indonesia, and I've seen in the airport, Saudis bringing, you know, coming in, in or out of the country, and Indonesians say, yeah, they're bringing, those are Wahhabis, and they're bringing in money to build their mosques, their schools, or, or whatever, and to influence Islam here, which is more moderate in, in Indonesia or Kosovo, and to try to make it more radical. Is he, from your reporting, did, does he seem willing to address that, to curb it, or is that too big of a risk for him politically? So do you mind if I give you another obtuse answer that-, that... <laughs> Go for it. Okay, it's a theme here. So it's a really good question. So Saudi Arabia has a, a relatively recent history of spending huge amounts of money to fund Islamic schools, mosques, uh, people, uh, Islamic fighters in places like Afghanistan in the 80s who were allied with the US um, at the time fighting communists. Saudi Arabia has a, a long history of funneling huge amounts of money to them. And one of the people doing a lot of that in the past was King Salman, Mohammed bin Salman's father, the, the guy who made him crown prince. It, it's, it's a little complicated. You know, you have to sort of have two things in your head at once here where the, the Saudi royal family were both the people keeping this very uh, austere version of Wahhabist Islam uh, in place in Saudi Arabia and broadcasting it to the rest of the world, but also living these incredibly decadent lives with women and alcohol and drugs. And, and so, you know, they're sort of both, both things at once. Mm -hmm. Salman was always known as less decadent and, and, and less, of a, less of an over-the-top spender than his, than his brothers. And 
he was the governor of Riyadh province, which is like the heartland of conservative Saudi Arabia for 48 years and had deep ties to the, the religious establishment and, you know, gave a lot of money to charities that were doing relief work, but also some of the money was going to organizations that we, many people would consider extremists. So Saudi Arabia does have, have a, a long, deep, relative history up to the recent past of exporting a very conservative version of Islam around the world. And one of MBS's big challenges, and one of the really amazing things he's been able to do is to, during his ascent, to convince the religious establishment within Saudi Arabia that they basically needed to go along with his plans to take away some of their power or else they would just lose all their power. So he sort of walked this fine line and he's done it in a very deft way. Like one thing he said to many, to many Westerners who met with him is this um, very disingenuous sounding line. Like, Wahhabism, what is Wahhabism? I don't know what Wahhabism is. I mean, all these foreigners, they come to me, they talk of Wahhabism. I don't, what is that? Tell me what that is. And when he says it to a Westerner, it sounds like he's saying like, I don't know what you're talking about. People you know, tar Saudi Arabia with this extremist, uh, you know, insult, but, but that's not really who we are. Historically, Saudi Arabia was moderate. We became conservative in, in, in the late 70s and early 80s. We just moved to the right, but, but Wahhabism isn't really a thing. But when a Wahhabist hears him say, what is Wahhabism? Wahhabists don't believe in Wahhabism. They believe in Islam. So to them, what we consider Wahhabism is Islam and everything else, Shiism, uh, you know, Suf Sufism, you know, with a, a mystic, mystical strain of Islam. Uh, these are not Islam, these are heresy. So he's, you know, he, he's come up with these talking points that I think very deftly kind of appeal to both sides. And he's been very good at convincing the right Westerners, you know, the current administration and uh, a lot of business people in America and in the UK that he is, he's a liberal or a liberalizing force. And to, to some extent he is. And he's also convinced, I think he's convinced a lot of the religious establishment in Saudi Arabia that um, he's not abandoning them, but if they don't make some concessions, you know, he kind of, I think he sort of came to a realization that um, his family's power is no longer based in the religious establishment. He has all the military, he has all the intelligence services. And so he, he convinced them that like they need to kind of go along with it. Interesting. I mean, it's, it's like he's got to thread this needle. <laughs> yeah. That that's not easy to thread, but so there's the political side of, of this, uh, you, know, re, you know, religion and balancing act. What about for uh, religious minorities in Saudi Arabia? This is something that, you know, we write a little bit about in the book, but really needs unpacking and, and it's really underreported, which is you know, the only real, I mean, there's some Sufis here, Sufi Muslims here and there, but the only real like significant religious minority in Saudi Arabia are, are Shia Muslims. And they, you know, are concentrated in, in Eastern province and are historically like really um, heavily discriminated against. It, it can be very hard for them to find a job. Uh, they tend to be poor. There are, there are all sorts of like day-to-day -day things. I mean, to be fair, the Saudi oil company has a lot of its operations in the East and there are a lot of Shia employed by the oil company. So it's not, you know, 100% they can't get a job, but it's not good. Mm -hmm. um, but the bigger problem for them is that when, when tensions get higher with Iran, they, the Saudi, you know, Iran is a, a Shia, uh, Shia country. Yep. The Saudi Shia, you know, become accused of being, you know, Iran sympathizers. And they're, 
are arrests, there are executions, there are shootings in the street by the, the Saudi military. And there's been, re, you know, been relatively recent flare-ups of violence in Eastern province against Shia that barely get covered. And so I, you know, MBS has appointed a couple of prominent Shia, you know, technocrats to significant positions, which I think was a combination of, uh, you know, some version of a meritocracy and, you know, symbolic, you know, making the point of appointing Shia, but I think for most of the Shia population, it's not good. It's not a good thing. And the more tense things get with Iran, the more precarious their, their lives are. So it's not, it's like not good. It's the short answer. And then, you know, talk about other minorities, like there aren't, really Christians in Saudi Arabia or, or Jews. Um, there are plenty of, uh, you know, Hindu uh, migrant workers who are coming from, you know, the Indian subcontinent, but you know, they really have no, no power or ability to worship in their, you know. Um, I, want, I do want to get back to, um, to the business and finance and some of your theses and very much appreciated what that you said in the book that you and Bradley used a Wall Street Journal methodology or, you know, or ethical reporting methodology to verify every fact. Uh, how did you get those kinds of anecdotes that he has a throne in the middle of his plane? Yeah. <laughs> I mean, I'll believe a lot of the stuff's out there because he's such a public person and has, you know, brought journalists and, and other public people on his planes and stuff. But one of the concerns of a book like this is, you know, we're relying a lot on anonymous sources. You know, we, we rely a lot on people who are afraid to, use their names because they are, you know, close and continue to be close to people in power or they are in power or they worry about retribution. We're basically general purpose investigative reporters who follow money. So our general methodology was build out, you know, like a universe of people in, in it. Like if we're, if, say we're looking at Abilid, we would find everyone who works for Abilid, has worked for Abilid, has done a deal with Abilid, has been across the table from him, has assisted him in a deal and like put it into a spreadsheet and then call people. And you know, we, have, like, we both have relationships with people in, in the Middle East who might be able to introduce us to some people. So it's a combination of like using past relationships and just like casting a wide net and finding people who have been on the plane or who have been involved in deals or who managed money or somehow had a relationship and then tell them we're interested in it and, and tell, us, tell us what you saw. And so, you know, we spent the greater part of a year and a half just talking to people who were in, who were in the orbit there. Well, and, and you talking about the fear and sourcing, you know, dealing with sourcing and fear. I mean, and that brings us to, I see you have some, a section in the book on Khashoggi, which was another moment, I think, when the world um, is trying to figure out who is MBS. Yeah, yeah, so, okay, so Jabal Khashoggi is, um, I hesitate to call him a journalist. He's oftentimes called a journalist. He was, he was like, he was a courtier. He was, the, you know, a member of a powerful, you know, merchant family from, from Jeddah in the West. And he, um, he'd always been sort of around the Saudi government. He was a spokesman for the embassies in London and, uh, and, and Washington at various points. He was close to a prince who was the head of intelligence and, and worked for him. And he was this very affable, smart, um, sort of adaptable guy who over decades, like he'd criticized the royal family a little bit, but always in a way that was sort of acceptable, never pushed the boundaries too much. And, you know, he knew journalists, he knew politicians, he knew like everyone everywhere. But he was sort of of the Saudi establishment. He was, he was, a, he was a courtier. He sort of split with MBS. He split with, with the royal family as MBS rose to power. And one of the things, you know, we get into our book, it's a little more nuanced than, than a lot of what's been told us. Like, it wasn't like, you know, 
I'm going to take a principled stance and like MBS, you know, I've had it up to there. You know, he had, prior to do that, he had, he had offered to start a pro-Saudi think tank with government money that would have, you know, it was like, he was never, it was, he was always sort of in the middle. He was in this gray area. But once they rejected him doing that, and once he got very frustrated with, you know, I think he did feel that Saudi Arabia had been a place where you could criticize the monarchy and, you know, MBS did really crack down on critics. I mean, he, he jailed a lot of people for criticizing him on Twitter. Uh, yeah. Khashoggi moved to, moved to the U.S., he sort of set up shop in Washington, sort of writing columns for the Washington Post that were extremely critical of MBS. Uh, and then, you know, took a trip to Turkey. Khashoggi took a trip to Turkey to, um, in the process of getting married. And when he went, to, he had to go to the Saudi embassy to, to get some paperwork done, and he never emerged. He was, you know... It, Turned out later on, he was you know killed and dismembered by men who work for MBS. Yeah, MBS has you know denied that he ordered the killing and said he was horrified by it. I mean, the guys worked directly for MBS, so MBS said he, he was you know he denied that he was involved. The CIA has said that MBS likely ordered it, um, and it's really you know a huge stain on him. You know what happened to Khashoggi is like really bad. But what about bombing school buses in Yemen? You know, MBS has led this bombing campaign in Yemen that he said would take three weeks. It's been going on for, you know, five years with incredible civilian casualties. And there are people who are starving. There are disease outbreaks. So, you right. know, the Khashoggi thing is horrifying to people like me who are journalists. But if you take a step back and you want to look at um, exercises of absolute power that have had negative consequences, I think, like, getting hung up, hung up on Khashoggi is a bit of a, a distraction. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. You guys get into the uh, the Sovereign Wealth Fund and other, you talked already about the uh, uh, public listing of the oil company. What are we going to expect uh, from, from MBS and Saudi Arabia as a finance and economics player and investor in coming years? His broad vision for the country has been, you take the Saudi oil company, which is the world's largest company by revenue. No one makes more money every year than the Saudi state-owned oil company. And the idea is you, he wants to, or you know, he did, um, sell stock in it on public markets. And the money he gets from that stock, he then wants to redeploy to diversify the government's holdings and the, eventually the Saudi economy away from oil. And so they became, you know, basically the biggest investor in Uber. Not the biggest shareholder in Uber, but the biggest, um, they put more money into Uber than any other single investor pre-IPO, three and a half billion dollars. They, you know, put huge amounts of money into, you know, $45 billion into this VC fund run by SoftBank, which is a Japanese firm that is the world's biggest venture capital fund ever. Mm -hmm. And, you know, these investments haven't all, haven't all panned out well, but that's, that's the broad strategy. But if you want to get an idea of what MBS's Saudi Arabia looks like to him in the future, um, the place to look is a project called Neom. It's a $500 billion you know, he says, $500 billion project that they're building on the Red Sea. So if you have a sense of, of the region, um, on the east coast of Egypt is Sharm el-Sheikh, which is a resort where uh, it's popular with Europeans to go like scuba diving. It's, you know, clear water and whatever. Across the Red Sea, which is very narrow, is, is a, a very remote part of Saudi Arabia that um, is very beautiful. It's, you know, mountains that, that go down to the sea and there's... Uh, archaeological sites, and there's a like new tourism industry in Saudi Arabia. So his idea has been to start building it up as a tourist destination, but ultimately to turn 
this sort of city-state into his vision for what Saudi Arabia would, could become. And so, you know, we got a, we got a hold of a bunch of the, the planning documents. So we based a lot of our, our work on these internal documents that were um, records of meetings with MBS and his deputies kind of setting out the vision for it and then, you know, plans for the execution. So the idea is that you know, Saudi Arabia has Islamic courts now. The courts are, you know, judges have this interpretation of Islamic law. It can kind of be all over the place. So yeah, there's Sharia courts, but that doesn't mean that like you get your hand cut off, you still have a gun. You know, it's like, it's in order to be more welcoming to business, they, in, in Neom, they're going to have a new court system where even though they're Islamic courts, they're, they have a, a much more clear framework for how business related law works and for how criminal law works and general civil law works. And the court system all reports up to him, up to MBS. So he's taking away the control of individuals to interpret religious laws as they understand Islam. And basically everyone reports up to him. Wow. And so it's, it's, it's this consolidation of power within the royal family away from, from the religious establishment. And the idea is, you know, within the walls of Neom, it's like a walled city-state and moving people out for it. You know, they're going to have all sorts of, you know, they talk about flying cars, uh, which may or may not exist, and like a, a, an island in the Red Sea with robot dinosaurs. He got a bunch of investors, uh, you know, like legitimate tech investors to say, support a project to like extend people's lifespan. I mean, there's a lot of stuff that really seems pretty far out there. But if you look at the, the framework of it, it's going to... It's taking a chunk of Saudi Arabia, consolidating power under him and away from whatever religious establishment or even bureaucratic establishment exists in other parts of the country. And the idea is through that will attract a lot of foreign business, a lot of foreign money. And I think that's his vision for the country is to expand that outwards and become a place where very conservative religion can exist and will be the underpinning. And of course, Mecca, you're not going to have alcohol, certainly, and probably not uh, you know, non-Muslims in Mecca or Medina. But that more of the country will be a place where technology and non-religion controlled court system will, will govern things. And then the, the holy cities will, will be more like the current Saudi Arabia today. So it sounds like with that project, Neom, it sounds a little bit like what uh, UAE has done, so Abu Dhabi and Omar. Yeah, I mean, it makes very clear in the planning documents that it's going to be uh, better than Bigger. Dubai. Uh, you know, explicitly better than Dubai. It's sort of in line with that, but it's, it's like this supercharged version that yeah. he wants to be very different. But really, yeah, it's a similar thing where you sort of wall off this one entity that's going to be international and not, you know, subject to, to the norms that other parts of your country are subject to. What I'm interested in is, you, know, you could see it sort of torture, because on the one hand, like you can't, it's very hard from my perspective to criticize someone who lets women drive, who makes it so you can go on a date, who paves the way for an educational system that is much, you know, prepares young Saudis much better to work abroad or to even better not have to work abroad. You have to have the country of a real economy with this opportunity. There are all these things he's doing that are really good for Saudi people. But to me, the big question is, um, is it, can it work to have a monarchy, an absolute monarchy where people have no say in their governance and have the kind of non-oil dependent modern economy that he wants. And I guess maybe China is the model where you have a place that's a dictatorship or a, a, an authoritarian regime where there's sort of a free economy. But, you know, when you have one guy running things whose main qualification is that 
he inherited it and was more ruthless than everyone else. It's a huge question about whether he's then able to kind of take the next step and govern in a way that really makes life better for his people in, in, a, in a sustainable way. And his goal is very noble. His goal of, of weaning Saudi Arabia off oil is, is noble and admirable. Like, I don't, it, it'd be foolish to disagree with that. But then the next step comes, once you no longer have an oil-based economy, you have an economy where people have businesses and they pay taxes. How do people feel about taxation without representation? You know, so that's the, yeah. these are the big questions. To me, these are the big questions. Like, if he's successful in moving to a real economy, is he going to start imposing ta you know, widespread taxation on people? How are they going to feel about that if they have no say in their governance? So these are the, th those are the questions that are interesting to me. I don't, it's hard for me to, you know, predict how forceful he'll, he'll be militarily going forward. I think he's probably learned from Yemen that you can't just, you know, bomb your way into getting what you want in the region. I think there's a huge question, you know, if, if Joe Biden wins the next election, uh, you're gonna have a, you know, America's a lot, a lot more skeptical of Saudi Arabia. Does he pivot toward China? Does he try to revive the US relationship? So there are all these kind of different ways it could go based on things that are out of his control. Well, I enjoy, I've enjoyed hearing your, uh, your take on all of these things and your knowledge that you've, you've, you and Bradley have developed in this book. And, you know, those who want to learn more, definitely buy a copy of Blood and Oil by Justin Sheck and uh, Bradley Hope. It's coming out, when is it? Uh, very soon. And yeah. September 1st, and people can buy it everywhere, right? Local bookstores, Amazon. Yeah, but thank you so much for having me on, Paul. I, I really like, I really, I really like talking about this. And I think, um, you know, it's like, it's it's a story. It's sort of it's like so much else in the world. It's ultimately a religion story, even when the things we're talking about on the surface are, you know, money and, and armament and, and politics. This episode of the Religion Unplugged podcast was hosted by executive editor Paul Gladder, edited and produced by Peter Freeby. Special thanks to Religion Unplugged managing editor Megan Clark. The Religion Unplugged podcast is a production of religionunplugged.com and is a part of The Media Project, a nonprofit dedicated to equipping journalists to cover religion. To read our award-winning global religion news coverage or to find out more about Religion Unplugged or The Media Project, visit religionunplugged.com or follow us on Twitter at religionmag. <laughs>